let's begin tonight as you make your way to your seat. If you need tonight's lesson and prayer list, it's on the back, has today's date, and it should say Lesson 6 on the inside as we're going to be closing out our study of the book of Esther. And so you'll be finding your place there in just a moment, a little lengthier passage. So we're going to read in between our songs like we did last week, and we're going to kind of break up the reading um, in between our songs. And so have that bulletin ready, have your Bible ready. To look at Esther chapter number 8 is where we will we will be beginning uh, tonight. And then just by way of announcement, two announcements. Uh, this Saturday morning at 9 o'clock <clears throat> down in the cafeteria, we'll have a men's breakfast. And uh, it lasts about an hour normally, maybe just a little less this time. But uh, that'll be at 9 o'clock Saturday morning, nine, um, down in the cafeteria. Uh, for men's breakfast, just spending some time together around God's Word, some time in prayer, and we'll have breakfast, and then uh, anybody that can stay after and help a little bit set up for uh, Sunday, that would be great. On Sunday, we have uh, a fellowship dinner or lunch right after the morning service, and so uh, just by way of announcement again, we're asking each uh, church family to bring a main dish, a side, and a dessert. If there's just one of you coming uh, then you can just pick one of those things. But if you're coming with your family, if you can, bring uh, a main dish, a side, and dessert. We'll provide the drinks and everything that we need for that, all the plasticware and cups and all those good things. And so we haven't done that in a while where the church is bringing everything. Uh, members are bringing everything. So if you would, just make sure that uh, you have that. You can bring it down before the service a few minutes early and drop it off. A few people have asked about uh, how to keeping things warm. We have a big, large warmer that'll keep everything at about 160 to 180 degrees. And so if you don't want your food at that temperature, then you may have to come up with your own plan. Sometimes you bring up, uh, some people bring things in crock pots and that kind of thing. That'd be just fine as well. But that'll be Sunday uh, morning, then right after morning service and an early afternoon uh, service to follow in the gym while we're down there. And we'll also be having the Lord's Supper this uh, Sunday morning as well. All right, let's open with a word of prayer, and then uh, <clears throat> we'll be singing a few songs and then reading God's word in between. Lord, we are <clears throat> grateful that we can come before you and we can praise you for uh, the fact that we can just trust you, that we do not always understand, and we don't always understand your plan and your working, as we have learned very cl- clearly these last few weeks in our study of the book of Esther, And uh, but we know that we can trust you. And we thank you for that, and we pray that you would use your word tonight to encourage us to do that. Uh, Be with those that are not feeling well or those that are facing struggles this week of any variety or kind. We pray that they'd be encouraged by your word tonight. Uh, Those of us that are here, that are gathered together, uh, that you'd encourage us in a time of prayer. And as we praise, lift our voices to you, Uh, may our hearts be in tune with what your word has taught us about yourself, about ourselves, and may we change to become more like you. We praise you for your goodness, and we thank you so much for loving us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. I love you, Lord. Take your Bible tonight, if you would. We'll read a chapter and then sing another uh, song in just a moment, but look at Esther chapter number 8. You know that we left off last week in the storyline of Esther, that Haman's plot had been discovered, that Esther's life had been risked, but then also rewarded 
her courage, her faithfulness to her people, to God's people. And Haman's uh, plot was then turned on himself. Haman is hanged or impaled on his own gallows, the large uh, pole that he had built outside of his own home that was about 70, 75 feet tall. And uh, the king's wrath is pacified. And we left off last week in the first couple verses of chapter 8 that tell us that Esther was given uh, all of the house of Haman, his inheritance, and that Mordecai is given all the authority of Haman. And so it was a, a reversal of uh, God's uh, God working on behalf of his people. And for most of us, if we had never read the story of Esther, we would just very much assume that's where it ends. That's where it, it can't it can't end any better than this. It can't get better. Surely this is the happily ever after. <clears throat> but if you notice, there are three more chapters of the book of Esther. And so we're going to look there tonight. And um, the conflict, the fear, and the danger for God's people is not quite through. And so if you would, look at Esther chapter number 8. And we'll read verses 1 and 2. We covered those last week, but we'll begin there. It says, "In on that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jews' enemy unto Esther the queen, Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears. So you know that things are not all just perfect. Here she is weeping. With tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and the things seem right before the king and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him that they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, and on the, third, <clears throat> on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it is written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces which are from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And um, just a side note, you just read the longest verse in the Bible, uh, just so you know. That is literally the longest verse in scripture, but we don't make a big deal too much about that because verses and chapters were added after the fact. Then verse number 10, and he wrote in the king Ahasuerus name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels 
and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people in the province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them uh, for prey. For prey Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing of the command <clears throat> for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against the day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And uh, let's sing again, and then we'll come back for the next portion in just a moment. Stand with us as we sing without him. As you're seated, let's resume there in chapter number 9, and we'll read oh, just about half of uh, chapter number 9, then we'll finish the rest in just a moment. It says in verse number 1, <clears throat> Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to uh, be put to <clears throat> in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction, and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. Now, the next few verses are fun names. And I thought tonight, instead of me reading them and you all judging my pronunciation, I'm just going to point to somebody in the uh, crowd tonight and when I point at you, you read whatever the next letter. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that tonight. Parson Datha and Dalphan and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Ar- Aradatha and Parmata and Arasai and Aradai and Vajazatha. Everybody can applaud. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <clears throat> Who were these people? The ten sons of Haman. The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. On the day, <clears throat> the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. 
And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace, and the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. Let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. And the king commanded to do it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day of the month Adar and slew three hundred men at Shushan. But on the prey they laid not their hand. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew of their foes seventy and five thousand, but they laid not their hands on the prey. On the thirteenth day of the month, Adar, and on the fourteenth day of the same rested day and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Let's sing one more time. And we'll look one final time to um, Esther, and uh, we'll read and then pray and then look at our lesson tonight. And if you would, notice, uh, where did we leave off? Verse 18. There you go. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day thereof, and on the 14th thereof, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month of Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. Portions means meal, foods, to one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of king, the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies in the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. The Jews undertook to do as they had begun and as Mordecai had written unto them because Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, meaning, meaning lots that, or dice, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that, this, that his wicked device, which he had devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, and of that which they have concerning this matter, in which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so it, as it should not fail, that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, 
nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther, the queen, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this letter, second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them. And as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed, the matter of the fastings and their cry, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Final chapter, it says, And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea, and all the acts of his power and of his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we finish out our study of this book. Lord, we ask you tonight that you would teach us of your word and of your way. You are a good and righteous God controls and is over all things regardless of our perception or what we believe is visible or uh, what we see and so we pray that you would teach us of our own lives your hidden hand and sometimes your disguised rule in us and over us your providence of every circumstance of life we praise you for it in jesus name we pray Amen. And so, as we finish out reading in the book of Esther tonight, we're going to walk our way through uh, these last three chapters. And you say, three chapters. Well, if you weren't here last week, we also did three chapters, and we were out by 1030. So, we're going to do the same tonight. We were actually out relatively on time, so that's our target again tonight. But I want you to look as we wrap up, because again, very similar to chapters 5, 6, and 7, they kind of need to be taken together. And the same is true of 8, 9, and 10. The book of Esther is a little different than a lot of the other books because it's just a narrative where you walk one, one passage just straight into the next. It's actually, if you, if you really look at it and compare it to even to our modern, modern writing, it's a, it's, it'd be considered a short story. And so someone is summarizing by the leading of the Holy Spirit this great, magnificent event of God's control in his people's lives, but they're summarizing it very quickly. And so sometimes it feels like we are blowing and blasting our way through this. And again, remember chapter numbers and verses are really just given for us to try to help organize and sort. And it's not just me saying, turn to Esther, find the fifth paragraph and figure out where I am. So we're going to take all these three chapters together this evening, and we're going to look at it and see how uh, the story of Esther and her people and this account of God's work finish. See there, it says, it says in the final chapters of Esther, we see the difficult consequences of Haman's hatred, as well as the rescue by God's reversals and how they both begin to ripple through the empire. Because you really have both as you read chapter 8, 9, and 10, you have remnants of Haman's initial, initial hatred and his law of bitterness that he had passed. It still has implications, though he's no longer living. But you also see God, remember how last week we just looked 
one right after the next, that all the things that God reversed. In fact, last week, there's a number of them again this week, but last week I think we put, I don't even know, 20, 25 bold print reversal was the title that we put on it. We just walked through all the things that God took and flipped on its head. And we said that as we study the book of Esther, we've walked our way through about a nine to nine to twelve years of history. Um, as we walk through Esther, and we covered those years of uh, history, and then we said that the last few chapters, or the last five, six, and seven, cover about 48 hours. And then we fast forward a few months, and the final few chapters cover just a short amount of time as well. So I want you to notice, if you would, and let's walk our way through. Number one, that judgment and rescue were decreed, both of them. I want you to pay close attention as we walk through and realize that the happy ending that we read in chapter 7 down to the first two verses of chapter 8 are not an ending at all. It's where we would like it to end. That just praying, a wand is waved, the bad guy is gone, the orphan that became the queen is ruling her selfless, serving uh, older cousin that had raised her now is elevated and the people in the kingdom know who he is and he's elevated in honor and glory. This is the parade and the credits come in and it fades to black. But that is not what happens. And in essence, it sort of reflects in a little bit of a way what happens in our lives as Christians. This is not an exact parallel of our salvation, but it is a shadow and a precursor, isn't it? Because you have this initial salvation that comes for the people of Israel. We have this mediator, this one that goes in seeking the redemption of her people in Esther. It's granted by the power of the king and it's turned and the enemy is defeated. But yet it still has lasting effects. And isn't that the case in our lives as well? Our enemy, whether we realize it or not, has been defeated. Now, he has not faced his final judgment as Haman has hung on a pole, but Satan has been defeated by the great mediator, Jesus Christ. He has been ultimately defeated and will be ultimately defeated by the gospel of God and physically, spiritually, completely annihilated, defeated one day, bound for eternity to never rise his head in rebellion against the Lord again. And yet, we are not to that point. And while Haman had been defeated, the effects of his reign and his rule, his authority and his actions carried on. And the same is true in our lives. We can declare great victory in our spiritual salvation that God has saved our souls. And yet, we still wait for a final rescue, don't we? No, no one came in tonight thinking, though we rejoice in our salvation, we rejoice in what God has given to us. If you're a Christian tonight, we rejoice in those things. But no one came in tonight free from issues, problems, sickness, fear, anxiety, discouragement. No one came in free of all of those things. Because we still deal with the devastating effects of sin every day in our lives. We wait for a final rescue. And yet while we wait, there's still this underlying threat. And we're going to see that in the people of Israel. 
Notice that there's a law that has condemned the Jews. It allows for their slaughter and the plunder of all of their things throughout the empire. We won't go back, but remember, if if you thought Esther was a controversial book so far, that here you have this uh, king who is womanizing and belittling to his queen, and then he rejects her and turns her away, makes a law to form a harem of at least hundreds, probably thousands of women from throughout his massive kingdom, One of those happens to be one of the people of God, an orphaned girl who is taken in and married by force and yet has an awful relationship with her husband. She goes long periods of time without seeing him. It appears that she has lost her interest. And now there's this evil guy that has risen up. And not only is Mordecai's good deeds ignored and forgotten, but now he's going to be rewarded with death. All of God's people are going to be rewarded with death. There's going to be genocide, not carried out by armies, but by actual citizens of the empire. They're going to murder their neighbors. I mean, this is difficult stuff, isn't it? And then all of a sudden you have this reversal and you have Esther go in and you have all these, just one thing after the next. And even that ends with some violence. You have Haman who is murdered, or he's not murdered, but he's condemned in, in judgment and he dies. And we feel like, oh, there was so much bad stuff in the first part of Esther. Surely this is the good ending. But now all of those people are still under threat of death. And, and, and there's something in our hearts and our minds that just doesn't sit right. We feel like if the same ring and pen that passed one thing into law, surely it could revoke another. But you've heard of the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians, and supposedly they viewed all of their laws as unalterable and irrevocable. And it wasn't like the genie with wishes, you only get three wishes, will I ask for more wishes? It didn't work that way. It wasn't like we passed this law, now we'll just pass another law that revokes that law or says the opposite. You couldn't do that. So you have these people that still remained in danger. Their spirits were overjoyed, but their bodies were still threatened. So Esther risks her life again in verses 3 and 4. Notice she goes in, falls at the king's feet, weeps before him. And in the same way, he extends his golden scepter out again. Now she has no reservation about going in. You say, well, of course, she had gone in once already. And he had given her favor. Surely he'd do it again. But there's no known to that. She risks her life. She tests the king's patience. And so she goes in and pleads that he would turn back the law that he had made against her people. And for summary's sake, what is his answer to her? I'm sorry, I can't. He says, I've already put Haman to death. I've given you all of his things. I've given Mordecai all of his authority. You, and, and In essence, here's what he says. You, I'm going to give authority to Mordecai. You take my ring in the same way that he gave his authority to Haman. You take my ring. You can make whatever law to the Jews and about the Jews that you like. But as far as laws that have been written, no man can change those. And can you imagine it setting in in Esther and Mordecai's hearts in those moments feeling, what are we going to do? God, you did not bring us to this point. You didn't let your people fast and pray to have me go in and risk my life to Mordecai mourning and praying in sackcloth and ashes. You didn't do all that just to save us, to see all the others killed. Surely God will not let this happen. So the king gives permission and he makes another decree not to reverse the first decree, but to balance it. It was written, I want you to notice this is interesting. You have a lot of 
parallels in chapter 8, 9, and 10 that parallel the first three chapters of Esther. In verse number uh, 8, he gives Mordecai the same power with the king's name and the king's seal and says, make a law, do as you wish. Remember when he did that for Haman? Haman pleads with him, offers him all that money. He says, no, 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 just here's my ring, just do what you wish. Then in verse 9, the same thing happens. Notice the king's scribes. And then all of those uh, letters that are written and they're sent to the deputies, the rulers, and all of the, the lieutenants. Remember how the way that that was listed back in chapter 3? It's sort of a parallel to all of those things. The same scribe. Can you imagine the, the writers sitting down, the, whoever wrote the laws out, and thinking, that as they start out, all, back in chapter 3, all Jews may be killed by their neighbors. You may take all of their things signed into law by King Ahasuerus on behalf of Haman, send this out. And then the same men sit down and they say, okay, Mordecai, what do you want to tell us? All Jews may defend themselves against other people that would kill them, and they can take all of the spoil of those people. And they had to look up and think, didn't we just, didn't we just do this? Didn't we just write a law exactly like this? And that's exactly what happens. It's sent out in the exact same way, with the exact same timing, and it is granted by this authority in the same way. I want you to feel the conflict that's coming as it goes. And so they make this decree, and the Jews are now rejoicing as it goes out. Notice in verse number 11, wherein the king granted the Jews, notice the detail of the law, which were in every city to gather, notice, gather themselves together so they didn't have to stand on their own, in their own home, defend just themselves. They were able to gather together sort of as a small army And then notice the exact wording is the same as the first. To destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish. All the people, all the power of the people of the province. That's not what it says. It continues on. Notice, that would assault them. So, Mordecai is careful when they're forming the law not to make this a war between Jews and all other people as it was before. But now, rather, the Jews are allowed to defend themselves against those that were going to kill and assault them. Notice it says both little ones and women. And there's some discussions to what that means. Does that mean that they're allowed to defend themselves against people that were going to attack all the men, women, and children that were Jews? Or is it saying anyone that attacks the Jews, their whole family is to be killed? The, the text is not extremely clear as to which one that is. I, I tend to lean toward the latter, but you're going to see in a moment that only the men are mentioned in that way as being killed. And notice the same is given to them. They can take the spoil for their prey. They can gain and benefit personally. And then notice it's sent out. The decree goes out. If you were to go back to verse 9, it tells you when the decree goes out. It goes out nine months before the appointed day. And so now the people of the empire know both decrees. And that's important for us as we walk through chapter 9. Because it is... It's a little difficult to stomach chapter 9, isn't it? In our natural human nature. It's a little difficult to stomach that God freed and saved his people. And yet 75,000 people died in a day throughout the kingdom with the lips or, or on, with the Jews on the lips of people throughout all the empire. God's people. And yet this conflict, 75,000 people died. And though that is difficult to stomach, it's important to note that nine months before that day, the entire empire is informed. You can attack the Jews or you can protect the Jews and the Jews can protect themselves. And people are given this choice. 
And so the events of Esther don't end with the great rejoicing that you read at the end of chapter number 8. Where it says that Mordecai goes out from the presence of the king in royal apparel. Blue and white. Remember just 48 hours before? About 48 hours before he goes in in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning. He's praying. Now he comes out in royal. And remember the response. You see another little reversal here. Remember the response of the people. Haman makes a law. Kill all your neighbors that are Jews and take all their stuff. And it says that he sat down and drank wine with the king and celebrated that. But what did it say that the people of the city, not in the palace, but of the city of Susa, what, how did they respond? They were confused. They were perplexed. What in the world is going on? Now notice their response at the end of verse 15. The city of Shushan, the city of Susa, rejoiced and was glad. So you can tell who the people preferred, Haman to Mordecai. They're rejoicing because now this virtuous seeming, this committed Jew is now in rule. And the Jews, it says, has light, gladness, joy, and honor. And there are moments like that in our own lives where we celebrate the decree that God has placed on our lives, that we are free from sin. He is saving us. He has vanquished the threat of hell and destruction in our life. His wrath has been turned away. And yet all the while, looming in the background of these people's lives, is a day nine months away in which they were going to be under threat again. And so how does the Bible reveal to us what comes? In fact, the end of verse 17 is interesting. It doesn't really tell us much about it, but it says, The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. Notice this, And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Remember how when Haman goes back, he tells his wife and his friends, Mordecai thwarted me. I had to carry him through on a horse and celebrate. And remember his, his wife and his friends, they said, oh, if he's a Jew, you're, you're not going to be able to defeat him. Because evidently it kind of spread around the, uh, the legend of these people that were from this area of the empire. And now they're spread all over the empire. But they're known that for centuries their God or something has protected them and provided for them through all this time. And now... Wait, there was a law about these people that they all had to die? And now the same emperor is sending out a law saying they could defend themselves? And some people pick, says they became Jews. It gives us no explanation as to what that meant. Does it mean if customarily they became Jews? If they, we know that certain Gentiles were sort of baptized into a Jewish faith, there was circumcision often involved, all sorts of ways that people could become a Jew. But there's really nothing given to us other than that people all of a sudden are desiring to be a Jew. Now, to parallel and a reversal again, isn't it? Remember what Mordecai tells Esther in chapter 2? Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. It's dangerous. You could die. And now, all the people look to God's people and say, we want to be one of them too. It was a shame and a danger to be one of God's people in the beginning. And now people desire to be one of God's people Because they see the freedom and salvation that has been declared for them. Again, another short parallel for our own lives as Christians. There are some people in the world and throughout history that it is not a good thing to follow the God of the Bible, the one true God, or however they may phrase it out. But as people's hearts are enlightened to the good news of the gospel, there are some that desire, I want to be one of those people too. And so for whatever reason, people... Convert or they come, become Jews. And then you have this day, chapter 9, that leaves us with some difficult assessment. Because 
Typically, violence is a little, it is is very distasteful to us. We want things to be solved without violence. But as we approach it, and it can be, again, a difficult thing, because you say, well, wait, God's people, not only are they not condemned to death, and now they are putting people to death. How do we reconcile? How do we deal with this? Here's a couple notes as we look at it. It's clear that the writer expects us to see these events as good news for God's people, and he does not apologize for it and that that can be difficult and if we spend our time explaining the way well they did this and they were guilty and these people maybe they deserved it Here, here's what it says there were enemies of god and god's people and for nine months they had the opportunity to choose do you go against god and his people or are you for god and his people which one and the people that chose against god faced judgment it's as simple as it gets And the Bible is very clear about it. And it expects us to feel joy, not in their physical death or in the loss of life, but that God reigns and rules over all of his enemies. And then notice it says, we see that people, uh, we see that people unjustly are sentenced to death are now rescued. That's a good thing. You have the people of Israel that are told they're going to be murdered and now they're saved. The Jews, it's interesting, do not take the plunder throughout the entire chapter 9. They do not take it, not even from Haman's sons. The day comes and the Jews prepare to defend themselves. So let's look there, if you would. So the time comes, and it's going to be, the law is going to be executed. The Jews gather themselves, verse 2, in their city throughout all the provinces of King Azarus to lay hand, notice this, on such as sought their hurt. And no man could withstand them. The fear of them fell upon all people. Notice, even the rulers, verse 3, the provinces, the lieutenants, the rulers of the provinces join and help the Jews. Why? Because of the position that God had elevated Mordecai to. They Remember how they all answered, not just to King Ahasuerus, but they used to answer to Haman. Now they all answer to Mordecai. So the reversal that God gave in that actually invokes fear on their lives, say, we need to respect Mordecai. We're not going to kill his people. We're going to help support them. And so all throughout the kingdom, the Jews defend themselves. Notice there's this rough justice that is presented in chapter 9, verse number 5, but it is clearly justice nonetheless. And just as a side note, in the day of the Persians, imprisonment was rare. There weren't a lot of prisons in the empire. They were difficult to manage. It's difficult to delegate. It was expensive to keep up in these different places. Imprisonment as a justice, as a form of justice, was highly rare. And it would have been almost impossible with the numbers that you're about to read, 75,000 people, to invoke, invoke any other form of justice. So you have this shock in chapter 9, verse number 6. It says, in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. Now remember what Shushan the palace is? This is not Susa, the big city. It says in Shushan the palace, in, in the palace of Susa, the courtyard, the government seat, uh, kind of like we, we said a few weeks ago, if you were to group the Pentagon and the White House and Congress and all the government buildings, the FBI, kind of put it all in one little federal place, compound. That's sort of the way that the government worked there in Susa. So it says within that palace, evidently there's several thousand people that live, work, and dwell there in that kind of inner Uh, court or in that inner palace area but within that i want you to notice this it's it's shocking in two ways it's shocking that 500 people died there but it's also shocking 
that there were still 500 men so committed to Haman and his plan that they still attempted to kill all the Jews, even in the presence of the very emperor, because they would have been allowed to by law. It actually probably shows where a lot of the allegiance lied in the kingdom. That most likely this frivolous, ambitious, flamboyant, prideful ruler of an emperor was not really the favorite among the government leaders in general. It seems that it was Haman. And so 500 people turn against the Jews, 500 men, and they're all killed. Included in that are 10 of Haman's sons. Remember back in chapter 5 and 6, he brags, he says, about his multitude of children. doesn't tell us that this is all of his sons. I tend to think that it's not all of them, but it gives us 10 of them that carried on their father's hatred and bitterness for God's people. They're killed. And then this is interesting. Notice verse 11 and 12. So all this happens. The numbers get brought to the king. King, 500 people in your courtyard, in your gate, in your palace, in the armory. 500 men attack the Jews. They're all dead, but 500 of them did. Now notice what the king does. The king first defers in chapter 1 to all of his rulers. What should I do with Queen Vashti? Then he asks them again, how do I get a new queen? He's always deferring his authority. Then he asks Haman, what do I do about this? Or Haman comes to him and pitches an idea and he concedes to Haman's law. Then he asks others. Now, as it comes to the end of the book, now he comes to Esther. And he says, the Jews have slain, destroyed 500 men in Susa or Shushan, the palace. And they've killed the ten sons of Haman. What do you want me to do next? And notice Esther's response. Sweet queen orphan Esther says to the king, let it be granted to the Jews, notice this, that are in Susa, that are in Shushan, not, not all over all the provinces, not over the whole empire. Let the Jews that are here do tomorrow what they've done today. And it sounds like she's saying, kill some more. But remember, they're only allowed to kill those that attack them and come after their lives. And it is not clear as to why Esther asks for this. But it seems to indicate that Esther probably had a better feel for the pulse of the governing empire than the king did. Because she says, oh, only 500 men turn against the Jews? There's probably some more. And so she holds off and says, let's do it one more day tomorrow. And we don't know why all 800 men didn't attack the one day. It could have been their families attacked the next day. They're, they're motivated that they've lost fathers or brothers or whatever it may have been, uncles and different things, and now they rise up. Or it could have been, we'll send a wave of men to kill the Jews in Susa first. If that doesn't work, we'll save some. And we'll kill them the next day when the law is not pertaining, when they can't defend themselves. And so a decree goes out. The Jews that are there in the capital city can defend themselves again. And the next day, 300 more men die. But it's interesting, again, it says that the Jews did not take from their hand. They didn't take from Haman. They didn't take. Now, the, think about it. The, the 800 men that died in the capital city, those would not have been poor men. They worked in the palace and they leave their stuff alone. And it's interesting. It goes on to tell us later that they still did not even throughout all the provinces. Look at the end of verse 16. So what happens in the rest of the provinces? The same thing happens on the first day. They killed 75,000 people. Now, when you think about India, 
to Ethiopia, the proportion is probably nowhere near the same. 800 of the people that lived in the palace attacked the Jews. 75,000 throughout the whole kingdom. And that's a lot, but it's probably not quite as concentrated as within the palace. But notice it says, what did the Jews? They slew them, defended themselves. But notice the end of verse 16. But they laid not their hands on the prey. Now, I want you to see this, and then we're going to wrap up and close. I want you to see this other reversal. There's a reversal here, not just of a few months, but of hundreds of years. Because remember, Haman is called a Haman the Agagite. Now, remember King Saul is commanded of God. Kill the Amalekites that have turned and tried to bring wrath on my people. Kill and destroy them all. Leave nothing. Take no plunder for yourself. Spare nothing. Now, what does Saul do? He spares King Agag, sort of like a trophy. And he profits and gains for himself by keeping all the things for the people. Now, hundreds of years later, God's people are told, kill the descendants of Agag that are going to attack you. And you can take and have all their things. It does not tell us why they didn't. But you can't help but think that Mordecai knows the story. And here he tells the people of Israel, no, we have a God that protects and provides. We don't need their stuff. We've done this once before. We kept their stuff once before. We're not going to do it again. And so the people leave all these things in a declaration that their God can provide and give them what they need. Then notice the last thing, how they choose to remember the rescue. It's interesting, the bulk of the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 are dedicated to the feast that is now then declared. He says you're going to have this yearly and Jewish tradition. <coughs> People that are hold to this, especially in the country of Israel, still celebrate, uh, celebrate the feast of Purim. It happens in March, I think this year, I looked it up, I think it's on March 16th and 17th this year. It kind of alternates like Easter depending on the calendar year. But it's usually somewhere between March 8th or 9th and March 20th. It's, it's in that ballpark usually each year. And they still celebrate it. But notice the things that they celebrate. They don't celebrate the killing of their foes. Though that is ultimately what happened. That's not what they celebrate. They don't rejoice in the downfall of their enemy in the violent sense or what they had to do. What they focus on is the rescue and the freedom that they then gained. It's interesting just to note the irony in the name. They called it Pur, which is the dice that were under Haman's authority. And they were kind of cast them to choose which day the destruction would come. And they said, yeah, that's a pretty good name for the feast. The Feast of Chance. The Feast of Lots. Well, what is it saying? The people of Israel are saying, we're going to celebrate this every year. Because what the world and what Haman looked like as random chance, we recognize that even that our God controls. And they say, we're going to celebrate. It's a feast to the sovereignty of God. That he reigns and rules over every aspect of life. Even to the way a cube falls on a table. If it means that's what he has to do to protect and provide for his people, he will do it. And we celebrate that, is what they say. And as Christians, we can celebrate the same. The feast, notice, clearly focused in, on the rescue and the reversal, not necessarily on the killings and the victory of war. While on the first Purim, notice, Haman's sons were hanged and enemies died. But in the future celebrations, what did they do? Notice, 
in verses, you see it there in verse 22, you see it back also in verse number 19. In verse 22 it says, they had days of feasting and joy, sending portions, meaning meals, to one another. They sent each other food. That's a good holiday, depending on who your neighbor is. And then it says, and gifts to the poor. Isn't that interesting? They said, we were given grace by God. We were spared in an unfathomable way. And we're going to celebrate it, not by rubbing it in the face of our enemies, but by extending love and kindness to those that are also in need. Because we remember our own need. And as we close tonight, I want you to think about this. The book finishes speaking about the esteem, the glory of Mordecai, the faithful and sometimes fearful, committed, righteous child of God that is eventually lifted up by God's power. I want you to notice, you see it there on the back, you have some different questions. I want you to look at those last couple. How does the joy of the rescue of God's people help us rejoice in a greater rescue that we find from God through Christ? They celebrate Purim one day. That we remember, well, two days, one day of feasting, one day of rest. Sounds like a good weekend to me, but as they go, they're celebrate. we celebrate that God once set us free. That we were condemned to death, not even they themselves. Like if you're a modern day Jew, not even yourself, but we celebrate that we had fathers of fathers of fathers that were condemned to death. And God in a miraculous way provided rescue once. And yet we celebrate weekly on the Lord's day that God has not provided rescue for others once, but that he has provided rescue for us for eternity. That it doesn't just have to be celebrated yearly, but that for day after day until there are no more days, until it stops counting, until there's no use in going up because there's never any going back that we will celebrate for eternity that God has given rescue in a way that no one could provide. And then notice, how can things like the Lord's Supper, we'll celebrate this week, gathering for worship together as Christians, fellowship of the church as its members, how should this stir us to great joy as we physically and spiritually remember the rescue of the cross and a promise of final rescue one day? The Jews, they would look back, remember when we were under threat of death, there was a miraculous salvation given to us by the mediator, Queen Esther. And then ultimately we were allowed to defend ourselves. We were set free. Our enemies were put down. We are in between. We have been given great rescue by our mediator, Jesus Christ. And we await his final rescue, in which all of his enemies will be put under his feet. Until then, how do we respond? We rejoice. And we call others to come join us. Remember all those people that became Jews. We call others to join because God offers rescue not just to one people or one group or one type. But he offers rescue to all men. And we're thankful for that. Let's ask him to bless us. Father, we ask that you will give us mercy and grace. We have finished our study of the book of Esther. But your rescue has not finished in us. You have set us free from the eternal consequence of our sin. And yet we still struggle with its threats each day. But we wait with joy and hope a day in which you will set us absolutely free, in which our enemy 
the devil and all evil and sin will be destroyed, crushed, never to be brought back again. And we ask you, we ask you to hasten it. We ask you to bring it and to give it to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with a few moments of prayer tonight as a church family. I hope that uh, if you're willing, you'll thought over and pray with somebody near you that uh, you don't never know what one of your church friends or family members may just need the encouragement of hearing you pray over them. And so gather with somebody, share a prayer request, couples with couples or a family together and, um, and share a prayer request and pray over some of these others that you have mentioned. There are several uh, that have been there for a couple weeks. No um, major add-ons this week from within our church. We're thankful for that. Uh, you see there at the bottom, Joyce Biggs. This is the wife of Pastor Ken Biggs that we prayed for several years ago. Um, she had a knee replacement, a long battle with um, an infection and eventually lost uh, part of her leg from her knee down. And uh, the last couple weeks, she's had another severe infection. We kind of moved past all that, and then the infection came back. She's had surgery Friday, I believe a procedure Saturday, and then she had another surgery last night. And I reached out to him to let him know our church is praying for he and his wife both. Um, but if you would, I pray that they'll be able to contain that and move through it. There's a lot of complications with it um, as well. But a friend of our church and ministry for many years. And at the bottom, if you want to write in, if you can write in, the name of uh, Justin Hayes. This is our missionary to um, Spain. He and his wife, Justin and Grace Hayes. I was actually I was on the phone with Justin on Monday uh, afternoon, late Monday afternoon, just on the phone with him, and um, he's actually going to be coming and joining us March 19th. He's going to be back in the States for a couple weeks and uh, speak for us and share what God's doing in his ministry there, uh, but not long after that. I think that evening, just a couple hours later, uh, Justin's father passed unexpectedly, and uh, I believe it was a heart attack. And so if you would, he's one of our missionaries, and he's got a lot of decisions to make, when to come back, and um, he's part of leading all that goes into that with his father. So we're an extension of our ministry, and we want to pray for he and his wife, and they have um, two sons, and, and so we want to be praying for uh, each of them that are involved. All right, let's have a, a few moments of prayer tonight together, and you pray that at your seat out loud, and then we'll be closed in prayer in just a moment.